Good morning, everyone. So glad to see you here this morning. We welcome you as a gathering of Christ followers to worship the Lord together. So we're going to start by singing some upbeat songs. Um, one of them is a song that um, I chose because I thought all of our visitors would probably know it. And then we're going to sing one everywhere I go that you visitors probably don't know, but you'll learn it. And um, we've got the Stauffer sisters up here to sing, and you're going to enjoy hearing them together. And um, so uh, I'm going to invite you to stand in a minute if you're able to. Um, I want you all to feel free to worship the Lord in the way that's best for you. So you can stand, you can sit, you can stand and salute, you can come down in the front, jump up and down in the mosh pit, whatever is the way you want to worship the Lord with these songs this morning. But let's prepare our hearts to worship Him by together. Let's stand for the word of the Lord and we'll read together Psalm 100 and then we'll sing. So let's read together. Shout to joy with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. Three, four...
Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you here in this place that God has provided for us to come together and, and worship Him. We are glad and thankful that you are here with us this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are new, a couple things for you to be aware of. In the back, uh, in the foyer out back, there's, there's a welcome table with coffee, and we would love to have you stop by there after the service, and we have a gift for you, and also there will be people there to answer any questions you may have. Also, there's a, a connect card in the seat in front of you. If there's anything you want to communicate with the church, you can fill that out and put it in the boxes on the back wall as you leave this morning. We would love to get to connect with you that way. This morning, at the, at the end of our service, we will celebrate communion together, so hopefully you grabbed communion elements on your way in. Um, if not, you can sneak out at some point during the service. There are communion elements in, out in the foyer on the table back there. And as part of our, our communion Sundays, we take a, a special offering, um, a benevolence offering that is used to help meet needs within our community. And so as you walk out this morning, there will be someone at the back door with a, a offering plate in their hands. Um, if you want to give specifically to the benevolence offering to meet needs in the community, you can put offerings in that plate. General offerings, regular tithes can go in the boxes on the back wall or can be given online. One of the, the big things in the life of our church coming up is we have VBS this week. It'll be a, a energetic and fun and exciting time for, for many kids from the community. So if you are if you are volunteering for that, um, there's a meeting after church this morning. 
So Ian sent out an email with details about that. If you're not sure where or when, you can find him and he can give you that information. But there's a meeting after church for people who are volunteering with VBS. One other announcement is that throughout this summer, we're doing children's church during the service. And so when I get back up here in a few minutes to preach, right before I preach, children age of four through seven are dismissed to go downstairs and have um, a time of fun and um, learning down in, in children's church. I mention that now because I've forgotten like the last two weeks to dismiss kids. And so I like have it in bold in my sermon notes this morning, so hopefully I'll remember this morning. But if not, when I start talking, kids go away. <laughs> It'll be way more fun downstairs. Not like I want you. <laughs> anyway, will you will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the chance to gather together as a people who you have drawn together in this place. You have worked in each life represented here through joys and sorrows and trials and victories to bring each one of us to this place. So as we gather this morning, would we gather with a keen sense of your hand in our lives that has brought us here for your good purposes? Would we be focused this morning on embracing this time, using this time that we have set aside to worship you? Would our minds be fixed on you and your goodness? Would we sing for your glory? Would we hear your word for your glory? Would we fellowship together after the service for your glory? Would we not take for granted what a privilege it is to have this time? Would we embrace it? Would we use it well? Would we fix our minds on you and bring you honor and praise? this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Bible is the story of God wanting to live with His people, be part of His people. You know, it started out in the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth intersected, and people and God were together in fellowship, and sin came along and kind of wrecked that. So then there was the tabernacle where God came and he was with his people as they wandered through the desert and as they lived in the promised land. Sin kind of wrecked that. And then there was the temple and that was a place where heaven and earth intersected. And then Christ came and he, uh, he ushered in the kingdom of God and a new covenant. And if you remember, you probably know where I'm going with this, that now God lives in his people. So this building was just an empty building all week. But now that you guys have all brought God's presence in here, we've got the presence and the Spirit of God with us. And so we're going to uh, celebrate that. You know, those of you that are online, um, we know that most of you are there because you can't be here. You're far away or you're sick or something. But there's something special about when we come together. We get to fellowship with each other. We get to encourage each other, pray with each other, hug each other. 
All those things are, are the benefits of the church gathering and bringing God and people together in this place, and we worship him this morning. We're going to sing a song, Lord, I Need You, which talks about Christ in us, and we know that the, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let's stand together and let's worship as we focus on the fact that God is indeed with us.
we do pray that you would come, you would be present with us in and through the Holy Spirit now. We would feel a deep and abiding sense of our, our need for you and for your mercy towards us this morning. That you, you would be glorified as we feel our need and cry out to you for mercy. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're child age four through seven and your parents want you to go to children's church, you are dismissed at this time. So when I was a kid, and I would, especially like in middle school age, like and I would stay home sick from school, I'd always dread the, the middle of the day. Because right? like, we weren't allowed to play video games when we stayed homesick, and so pretty much the only thing to do to stave off boredom while we were homesick was to, to watch TV. But, but we didn't have cable, and it turned out your basic over-the-air stations don't program with a target audience of kids in mind at 
12 in the afternoon. And so, like, I had this very clear memory of, like, when I'd arrive, stay home sick, everything would be fine up through 11 o'clock, right? Because I would, I would watch The Price is Right from, from 10 to 11, and that was great, right? But then I would dread the next several hours, right? Because the next several hours had nothing but, like, daytime soap operas and infomercials on, on TV. That was just a miserable stretch, there's nothing to do, like, nothing to watch on TV. Right? But finally, at, at 2 p.m., there'd be a little reprieve. Right? Because at 2 p.m., Judge Judy would come on. <laughs> right? Not that Judge Judy's like my favorite TV show ever, but like, compared to Days of Our Lives, it's a vast improvement. Right? Right, if, you're, if you're somehow not familiar with who Judge Judy is. She was a, a small claims court mediator, and she had a TV show that filmed the court cases in her, in her courtroom. And the Judge Judy TV show ran from 1996 until 2021. So 25 years. There were over 7,000 episodes of the Judge Judy show, which is an insanely long time, an insane amount of episodes for any... TV show, which raises the important question, like, which is, how can a TV show about small claims court be so popular that it got 7,000 episodes? Like, that doesn't make sense in my head. Right? But the answer, of course, was like Judy herself. Right? She became so popular and so well-known that by the end of that show's run, she was making $47 million a year to film that show. And what made Judy so popular and worth that kind of money was that she had this you know, straightforward, no-nonsense, suffer-no-fools commitment to justice. Right? Like she had a, an attitude about her. Okay. Especially she had an attitude towards those she deemed to be in the wrong or those she thought were trying to evade her questions or deceive her. In fact, one of the taglines of the show over the years was justice with an attitude. And that attitude is embodied in the titles of a couple of her books. One of her books, the title is Don't Pee on My Leg and Tell Me It's Raining. <laughs> and the title of another of her books is Beauty Fades, Dumb is Forever. <laughs> The appeal of, of watching Judge Judy, like for me at least, was watching people who were clearly in the wrong, being very foolish about it, and seeing them get absolutely put in their place by Judy. Right? Like Judge Judy had a commitment to two things. Right? Justice, and letting you know that she was the one who was in charge. Right? You didn't try to mess with Judge Judy, and if you did, it would not go well for you. Judge Judy stood her ground. It would not get pushed around. Now, thinking about Judge Judy this week, as I prepared this sermon, because in this sermon passage, we, we encounter a judge who is like the exact opposite of, of Judge Judy. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14 this week. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen as well. And in this, in this parable... Jesus tells a story featuring a judge. But, but unlike Judy, this, this judge is not committed to justice whatsoever. 
But the judge in this parable also doesn't have any resolve to stand his ground the way that Judy does. Which turns out to be a good thing because in the end he can be coerced basically into doing the right thing. We'll read this passage together in a minute, but before we do, let me remind you kind of where we are in the grand scheme of, of Luke, and especially what we looked at last week. So last week we read Luke verses, chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. And that passage starts with a Pharisee asking Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus', Jesus reply to that question is that, that the kingdom of God is already here. When Jesus showed up, he brought the kingdom with him. It's already here, but it has not yet reached its full completion. It's not yet fully realized. That will happen when Jesus comes again at the second coming. And so now in today's passage, Jesus turns back to his disciples. And he's going to teach them more about how they should live while they wait for that second coming. How they should live while they wait for the kingdom to reach its full realization. And in particular, his if focus this morning, his focus in the two parables we'll read, is going to be on the importance of prayer while we wait for the kingdom to come. If you wanted to boil today's passage down into one sentence, you could say that Jesus' main point in the two parables we'll read is that while you wait for the fullness of the kingdom, pray. While you wait for Jesus to come again, spend your life in prayer. And Luke makes it clear from the the very first verse in this passage. In verse 1 we read this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And like, when I read this verse, when I was getting ready for this sermon, I was, I was like so thankful. Right? Because like, sometimes, especially when we're doing parables of Jesus, like half the battle for me as I write the sermon is figuring out what the main point is. Right? But here Luke just tells you, like, verse 1, here it is. Right? Always pray, don't give up. Right? So, and if you like, so if you were just to stop listening right now, which I hope you don't, but if you did, like, and all you got from this sermon was, like, always pray and don't give up. Like, that's all you took from this morning. Like, this morning will have been well worth your time. Right? Like, always pray, don't give up. That's the, the point of these parables. Jesus wants to, wants to show the disciples that while they wait for the second coming, while they wait for the fullness of the kingdom... They should pray and pray and pray and never give up. They could tell two parables that drive that point home. The first of those parables starts in verse 2. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. When I was teaching fifth grade, before I finished seminary, I I found I could break my fifth graders down into three groups based on how to best motivate them. I was teaching at a Christian school, and so there were some kids, 
So maybe not if many of you would expect who, who loved Jesus and were motivated just by the fact that they wanted to honor God with their lives. It was, it was easy to motivate them just by showing them how doing the right thing was honoring to God. There were other kids that I had who didn't care much about honoring God with their life, but they, they cared deeply about what other people thought of them. Whether those other people were me as their teacher or their peers or their parents, like they were motivated by and cared about what other people thought about them. And so these kids could be motivated by showing them how their bad behavior would negatively affect others. There were some teachers who I worked with who like one of their go-to methods for classroom management was like if one kid misbehaved, right, the whole class had to stay in for part of recess. I didn't do that because I didn't think it was fair to the kids who did behave, and because, more importantly, I needed those kids to go outside and leave me alone <laughs> for a while. And so, like, I, didn't, I didn't use that, that method, but the teachers who did use that method used it because they knew that kids would be motivated by not having their peers upset at them. And kids like that, like once you figured out that they were motivated by pleasing others, could be pretty easily motivated as well. But the really challenging kids to motivate were the kids who didn't care about honoring God and didn't care about others, but only cared about themselves. To get them to do the right thing, you had to constantly hound them. You had to make doing the wrong thing so unpleasant and annoying that they eventually did the right thing just to get you off their back. And the judge in this parable was like clearly one of those kids in school. Twice in this parable we're told that the judge doesn't fear God and doesn't care what other people think. He only cared about himself. But eventually the widow convinces the judge to give her justice, to do the right thing by her sheer annoying persistence. The judge just decides that his life would be better if he just gave in and gave her what she wants. And Jesus uses this parable to teach the disciples that they should pray persistently. And one of the really important things to keep in mind when it comes to the parables is that they typically teach one main point. And trying to push them to do more than that will get you into trouble. And I mention this because sometimes people read the parable we just read, and the first thing that comes into your mind is like, well, why is Jesus comparing God to an unjust judge? But that's not the point. Jesus was not using this parable to teach us about God's character. He was using this parable to teach us that we should always pray and not give up. He's using this parable to teach us to pray persistently. Which is, I think, why Luke tells us at the very beginning, way back in verse 1, what the point is. He doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want us to miss the point. He doesn't want us to think the wrong things about God. He just wants us to be clear. The point is, pray always, don't give up. But the point is not that God needs to be harassed and worn down by our prayers, like the wicked judge. Instead, Luke is saying, like, if persistence will work even on a wicked judge, how much more will our persistence pay dividends when we are praying to a good and gracious and just God? 
There are probably many of you here this morning who have been praying for something in your life for a long time. Maybe it's for a certain loved one to come to know and follow and trust in Jesus. Maybe you've been praying for a long, long, long time about some medical condition. Maybe you've been praying for a long time about needing to overcome some persistent sin in your life. Whatever it may be for you. Like many of us have something that, that comes to mind that we've been bringing before God for years and years and it just seems like it's not being answered. Right? If that's you this morning, right? I hope that this passage will remind you, will encourage you to keep persisting in prayer. I can't pretend to know the reasons that God has delayed in answering that prayer. But the point of the passage is, like, don't give up. Pray persistently. Pray and pray and pray and keep on praying. If there's something in your life that you've been bringing to God over and over again, keep praying. Or maybe you're here and you're on the other end of the spectrum and your prayer life is such that like, you've never really taken time to pray consistently about something. Like, Maybe you'll pray a one-off prayer when you're in trouble or you're in deep need, but, but you don't consistently and persistently pray to the Father. If that's you this morning, then I would, I would encourage you to, to make time in your life, to make prayer an important aspect of your life. Luke tells us that Jesus told the disciples this parable so that they would know that they should always pray. And the same thing should be true for each of us. We should be always praying. That doesn't mean we should all become like monks and lock ourselves away in solitude and spend every minute of every day in conscious, focused prayer. But it does mean that our lifestyle should be one of prayer. That as we live our life, there's a constant and continual conversation between us and God happening in the midst of our day-to-day lives. We should supplement that kind of ongoing prayer by with focused times of prayer. But to pray always, as Luke says here, or to pray without ceasing, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, is to live a life in which we pray as we go about the business of our day-to-day lives. Paul Miller talked about this in his book, A Praying Life, which is I think, one of the more helpful books on prayer that I've read. If you're, if you're looking for a way to incorporate prayer in an ongoing way into your life, I would, I would commend that book to you. You get it called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. One of, one of my favorite things he said in that book is he talked about how being prayerful doesn't mean that we give up all our responsibilities and go lock ourselves away to pray. Instead, he says this, Learning to pray doesn't offer us a less busy life. Instead, it offers us a less busy heart in the midst of outer busyness. And so if you're, you're here and prayer has never been a central part of your life, if prayer has been something of an afterthought for you, I would encourage you to commit yourself to pray. This honestly has been like, the big takeaway 
for me as I've studied and worked on this passage this this week. Like, like I pray as part of my morning routine. I pray at set scheduled times throughout the day. I, I pray at meals. I pray with my wife and kids before bed. But apart from those set times, like I often live the rest of my life detached from ongoing conversation with God. I can't say that I always pray. I can't say that I pray without ceasing. But that, that's you this morning. Would you, would you join me in light of what Jesus says here in, in committing yourself to, to praying a life of moment-to-moment prayer as you go through day-to-day life? And the wonderful thing about prayer is that we can pray with confidence that our, our prayers are not futile. In verses 6 through 8, we read this. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So not only should we pray persistently, but thanks to God's goodness and justice, we can also pray hopefully. And when I say hopefully, I mean hopefully in a a biblical sense. In in day-to-day life, we often use the word hope to talk about things that are uncertain. Like, Like, I hope my favorite sports team wins, or I hope I can find a good parking spot, or... Like, I hope I get a certain present for my birthday. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it means a confident expectation for something good to happen in the future. The Bible's definition of hope is not a a hand-wringing, gee, I hope kind of hope. It's a confident expectation based on God's power and goodness that good things will happen in the future. And it's amazing how much, like, whether or not you have a confident expectation can impact how you act. So yesterday I I played in the pickleball tournament here in town. This is now the the third tournament I've played in in the area. And so these tournaments tend to draw the same group of people from the region, and so as a result, we played seven teams yesterday, and three of them we had played and beaten in, in the past. And it struck me as I played yesterday how, right, how differently I played against teams that I had played against and beaten previously. Right? Against teams that I had never played against before, there was a, there was a kind of a feeling out process. Right? I was nervous and tentative and tight and and unsure if we'd be good enough to compete against them. But against the teams that we'd beaten before, I played much looser, much more confidently, and as a result, much better. Because I had a confident expectation that we could indeed win. Having a confident expectation changed how I acted. And the same is true in an even greater way in our prayer life our prayer life will look very different depending on whether or not we have a confident expectation that God will bring about good things in the future. 
If we're not confident that God will bring about good things, our prayers will be tentative and restrained and tight and nervous. But if we have a confident expectation that God will hear our prayers and He will bring about good things from them, then we can, as the author of Hebrews says, approach the throne of grace with boldness. We can pray boldly, we can pray hopefully, because we have a confident expectation that God will bring about good things. We can be confident that Jesus will ultimately return and the kingdom of God will reach its full perfection. But we also need to be careful, even as we talk about praying hopefully, to not miss the underlying assumption of this passage, which is that there will be some delay before Jesus returns. There will be some delay before Jesus brings everything to a perfect and just and glorious end. In verse 8, Jesus asks, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus does not actually think impossible that there will be no believers left when he returns. But the implication of that question is that there will be ample time between when he speaks those words and his return, that it could happen, right? And that the time between his speaking those words and his return will be marked by trials and difficulties that will tempt people to walk away from the faith. And the important thing here is not to let that delay, not to let those trials and those difficulties cause us to lose hope. Peter addresses this idea in his his second letter when he writes this. Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Speaking of the delay... But then Peter goes on to say, But they deliberately forget that long ago, God's word, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters and the word also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And the point of all this being Don't let the trials and the hardships of life cause you to lose hope. 
Don't let those trials and hardships cause you to lose your confident expectation that God will do good things in the end. Don't let those trials and hardships cause you to stop praying. Keep on praying. And pray with a confident expectation that one day Jesus will return. And He will set all things right. Do not lose heart. Pray confidently. And after or telling that parable, that encourages people to pray persistently and pray confidently, Jesus goes on to tell another parable about prayer. Continuing in verse 9, we read this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the point of this parable, being that in addition to praying persistently, and in addition to praying hopefully, we should also pray humbly. In this parable, Jesus tells us of a Pharisee that prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give a, a tenth of all I get. And this is a prayer that's obviously boastful and proud. And you might think, I would never pray a prayer like that. And you're, you're probably right. You wouldn't pray that prayer. But maybe only because we're better at disguising our pride in prayer than this Pharisee was. There's, a, there's a, a modern example of this that you may have found yourself guilty of at one time or another. Right? Like a modern version of this we might call like, prayer group gossip. Right? Jonathan Acuff, in an, on his blog, Stuff Christians Like, writes about this. He says this, We've all either heard somebody do this or done this ourselves. In the middle of a prayer circle, someone will raise their hand with a prayer request and then proceed to gossip about somebody else. Usually it sounds like this. I want to lift up my friends Charlie and Sandra. Sandra caught Charlie looking at pornography online, and then he yelled at her for running up all their credit cards. And you know their son got kicked out of school for getting drunk and doing the African anteater dance at the homecoming dance. So I just really want to pray for them. Right? It, to say, it completely bogus. And I'm sure that when God hears stuff like that, He wants to throw a lightning bolt down on us. And not just a regular one. Like some sort of super lightning bolt coated with tigers and switchblades. Right? So like Acuff, they're obviously using an extreme example for the sake of humor. Right? Right? But many of us have experienced or been guilty of something similar in, in real life. Right? If we go to a Lift up somebody in prayer, right, not because 
we really want prayer for them because we want to show how much better we are than the person we're praying for. And this kind of prayer group gossip is, is no better than what the Pharisee does in this parable. That prayer group gossip is a prayer rooted just as much in pride than the Pharisees. That the prayer where we want to show that we are better than others, and it is entirely, Jesus says, ineffectual. Instead, the prayer that works is the humble prayer of the tax collector in this parable. In verse 13, he says, The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that it was this man's prayer that worked. Right? He said this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. So when we pray, our prayers should be humble. We should pray humbly. And the key to humility in prayer is that we, like the tax collector, remember our sinfulness. And we remember our utter dependence on the mercy of God. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says, To pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. That's what the Pharisee forgot and the tax collector knew. We are dependent on God for everything. We get ourselves in trouble and we think we deserve anything or have earned anything from God. We must always, always, always remember that our sinfulness and our need for God's mercy are primary. If we remember those things, then like humility and prayer will be the natural result. One of the means that God uses to help us remember our our sinfulness and our, our need of mercy is communion. When we take communion, we, we remember how, how Jesus' body was broken and His blood was shed because of our sinfulness. That Jesus had to give up the glories of heaven and come and live among sinful men because it was the only way for us to be forgiven of our sin. Jesus went to the cross bearing our sin on Himself because it was the only way for our sins to be forgiven. Because Jesus did that, because Jesus went to the cross, because Jesus took our sin upon Himself and suffered in our place on the cross, then when we pray like the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner, God delights to do that. He delights to show us mercy because of what Jesus did. If you're here this morning and you've, you've never prayed that prayer, you've never prayed, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. If you've never prayed that prayer before, I would encourage you to do that now. Trusting Jesus is the only way for those sins to be forgiven. For those of us who are here, who have trusted Jesus. Right? Then, then remembering Jesus and what He did on the cross for us should help us to 
remember our dependence on God. It should drive us to prayer. And our prayer should be persistent. Our prayer should be hopeful. And above all, our hope should be, our prayer should be humble. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together, but I'm going to give us a, a few minutes to sit quietly. The worship team's going to come. They're going to play through a song one time while we just have a few minutes of quiet reflection. They're going to lead us in singing that song. And then I'll come back up and I will lead us in taking communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you Above all else, we thank you for Jesus, for the salvation he offers through his death and resurrection on our behalf. Pray that as we take communion in a few minutes, if we had this time now, we would remember all that Jesus did for us. We would remember our own sinfulness. We would remember our dependence on you. And it would drive us to pray. And it would drive us to humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Father, we thank you for this tangible, physical reminder that Jesus' body was broken for us. That Jesus' blood was spilled to forgive us our sins, not for a little while, but for all time. That His work was perfect and complete and final. Now as we wait for Him to come again, would You give us hope and humility and persistence while we wait? Would we live lives that are honoring to You? Lives that point to You and Your glory? Lives that bring hope into a dark and hurting world. And would we be people who pray, knowing that we are dependent on you for everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you you leave here this morning? Would you go? humbly, hopefully, persistently waiting for Jesus to return and for the kingdom to come to its full completion. You are dismissed.